Good morning. How's everyone doing today? Doing good? Awesome. Nice. That's awesome. Well, I hope today you've come prepared to listen to God's Word, to interact with what is going to be spoken. Because if you've come today just out of obligation, out of tradition, you're going to be very bored. Because today we're going to go the distance. Today it's not going to be a sermon that ends early so that we can get to lunch faster. <laughs> today we're actually going to, we're going to dive into the Word. We're going to hear what God has to say. And we're going to walk with Christ in this Holy Week. Now, Holy Week is holy for the simple fact that it was Christ's last week with us. So that's why we label it as a Holy Week. Right? But in truth, shouldn't every week be holy to us? Two words that came to mind when I sat down to... have God pour over my heart what is to be shared today was empathy and apathy. Empathy is defined as the ability to share the feelings of another. Apathy is the lack of interest, enthusiasm, or concern. Which of these best describes our culture, our faith culture today? Which of these best describes you as we sit here today? Are we empathetic to Jesus' story? Or has His story, has His mission, has His ministry become stale. Has it become stale that we start to reflect a lack of interest, enthusiasm, or concern for our church, for this body? Are you enthusiastic when you wake up Sunday morning? Or is it a drag because of obligation? We seem to be extremely apathetic when it comes to Jesus Christ, but we are empathetic when it comes to caring for other life forms. We then use areas that we are empathetic to justify our lack of interest in our relationship with God. And we pass it off as ministry. Ministry void of God is equivalent to food void of seasoning. We need to place ourselves into Christ's 
emotional state. To step into his shoes, to look at the events unfolding in his final week through his eyes and bring our hearts close to his. Only then can you truly experience the love of God and understand the magnitude of the greatest sacrifice of all. Every Sunday we receive Christ as He was, was received one week prior to His death, including today, including last week, including on Christmas and all the other grand celebrations. He is received with praise and worship, joyful faces, feeling encouraged to know that God is good and that all the time God is good. We come every Sunday knowing that our Redeemer lives and He is not coming on the back of a horse in judgment, but rather He straddles a beast of burden. He comes on the back of a donkey as a symbol of peace. On, the, on that Palm Sunday, when he rode into Jerusalem, they celebrated him all the way into the night. Every Sunday we celebrate him, sometimes not into the night. But we celebrate Him. But for some reason, by the time Saturday rolls around, celebration is gone. And almost we are in mourning and we are in suffering for the sins that we have committed on Friday and Saturday because we thought we were free of Christ. We don't realize that we are never free of Christ if you are a follower of Him. So in a Christian's life, there should be no Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. There should only be Sunday, 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 seven times over. Every day must be a day of praise and recognition. But for some reason, only on Sunday do we receive Him, only to betray Him every other day of the week. On that Palm Sunday, he rode into Jerusalem and they celebrated him mightily. They were undignified in their celebration. All the way into the night. Mark 11, 11 tells us that Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve. Since it was already Late. Now when we start to picture God's story, when we start to picture Christ's story, if you look at it as a bunch of words stringed together, you will not fully understand or grasp the heart in the matter. Now at first glance, when I thought about it, 
As Christ walked into the temple, I started to think about what he may have seen. And now it was late, so the temple was empty. But I'm pretty sure he saw tables set up. He saw doves in cages. And he saw a money box on each and every single one of those tables. But digging a little deeper, I can imagine that as he looked around, he felt a heaviness fall upon his heart. That sadness and disappointment overwhelmed him. And that it became harder to swallow. After looking around the temple with his apostles, he left for Bethany. You see, Sunday was an outward expression, an outward celebration, but regardless of how outwardly expressive we are in God, Christ will always visit your temple. Christ will always come into your life and look around. What will He see? Will He see a temple of the Holy Spirit, or will He see it to be disgraced by the sin that we embrace in our lives by the hate that we grasp on because of our pride. The next morning, Monday morning, Jesus woke up and headed back to the temple in Jerusalem. He had a mission. He wanted to see what was going on. He saw it empty, now he wanted to see how the people treated it. He headed back to correct the example that was being set by the church. To reveal to those present the truth of how life should be. That day Christ was impassioned as he made his way back to the temple. And for a moment he laid aside his humanity and we got a glimpse of the king that resided in him. We got a glimpse of this lion that roared within him. And he did it all over breakfast. <laughs> or, as we know the story, the lack thereof. In the distance he saw a fig tree and he said, I was hungry. He said, on my way to Jerusalem from Bethany, I got to walk, so I'm going to go to this fig tree. And it's going to provide me with, with what I need. Now he was impassioned, so he walked up to that fig tree looking and seeking to be fed. Looking and seeking for that tree to provide what it should have provided. Now the word of God tells us that it was not in season, so naturally the fig tree did not have fruit. But you did not realize that I am no mere man that comes before you. I am your creator. You will create fruit today. Right now, in my presence, that you shall deny me what I made you to be? That fig tree didn't produce any fruit for Christ. And in that moment, we saw the king reside. He laid aside his, sheepish, his sheepishness and brought out this lion. And he said, you know what? You will never bear fruit again. 
That tree did not recognize his power. That tree did not recognize his might. And you know what? He was tired of human disobedience. He was exhausted. That yet another creation would disobey him. That fruit never, that tree never produced fruit again. From there he went on to the temple and carried out his mission to cleanse it of wrongdoing, to convict its leadership and to teach all those around. Mark eleven eighteen tells us that it was at that moment of cleansing and teaching that the chief priests and scribes feared him. Because the crowds were enamored by him. They were taken in by his teaching. This is not what the leaders of the church teach. Who is this man? I can imagine that on his way to the temple, Jesus had to subdue that kingly spirit that resided within him. He had to put back on his human self. It was in that temple that Jesus teaches us many things. But one of the things that stands out to me, and one of the things that you need to listen to today, one of the things that encourages me, is that God's sheep, that God's sheep, that God's people, that the people who have the Holy Spirit, within their being, possesses the strength and passion of a lion, of a king. You are much stronger than your humility. That's why you can be humble. Over the next few days, Judas Iscariot allowed his heart to be hardened and betrayed Christ out of personal ambition. He was hungry... He was hungry, but it was no longer for the right food. He was hungry for money. He was hungry for his job. He was hungry for everything else but for Christ. What cemented this disagreement between Christ and Judas was over an argument of expensive perfume over an alabaster jar. John chapter 12, 4 to 6, it says, But Judas, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money then given to the poor? Now he said this, verse 6, Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. He had ulterior motives. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer or he used to steal what was put into it. Along with the impending betrayal and Christ's knowledge of it, Jesus took the time 
to observe people, to teach them and continue in his fellowship with his disciples. It was in those moments of fellowship that he began to prepare them for the trials that were to come. Much like parents who prepare their children for a life minus them. Think about it. Such a sad state. Can't imagine it. Don't want to imagine it. This doesn't mean ignoring the pain or the heartache that comes with loss, that comes with missing people, but rather overcoming it because love should supersede all. This is and has always been Christ's example to us, to love beyond oneself, to value others as higher while taking on a position of humility. All of this, all of these chain of events brings us to today's message. Like I said, we're in it for the long haul, guys. You're looking tired today. Some of you are looking tired. Sleepy-eyed. I know, I know. We set the hour, right? One, one hour forward. It's all right. It's all right. We're in it for the long haul. We came here to hear and to learn about God. We didn't come here to sleep on God, though that can be sometimes a reflection of our spiritual life. Amen? I mean, I'm saying let's be truthful now, right? We're in the house of God. You can't lie to Him. You can lie to me and you can lie to yourself, but you know the truth, all right? So anyway, let's go. This brings us into our message today. We're talking about Wednesday and Thursday of Christ's journey of Christ's Holy Week. Now, I don't have much on Wednesday for you. The assumption is that that was the day that uh, he and his disciples rested. It was the assumption that uh, he and his disciples, or he sent off his disciples to start preparing the Passover meal. But the Word doesn't really talk too much about Wednesday. Truthfully, the Word doesn't really characterize any specific days. We just, you know, theologians just kind of assumed the structure. We all know it took, within, it took place within a week, but where it fell, we're unsure. So the Thursday within Holy Week is the day of the Passover. But this particular evening is better known to us as Christ's Last Supper. Now you think of the Last Supper, imagine if you had one more supper with your family. We sometimes think of Christ's Last Supper, but we forget the importance of it. It's just a word, two words stringed together that we're so used to hearing that we, we don't understand the weight of it. But children, as you sit here, or parents, as you sit here, think about the Last Supper that you have with each other, with your family. If you had only one more meal with your children, that is where Christ is today. Imagine his heart. Children didn't know what was going on. The disciples had no clue. But Christ knew what was about to happen. 
It was Christ's last meal. And if you're familiar with the movie, it was Christ's green mile. John chapter 13, verse 1 starts us off. It says that Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Not to the end of his life. He loved them to the uttermost. He loved them to eternity. His love was incomprehensible. If you could paint a picture for a moment, if you can start to imagine that if you were in his shoes, what would it look like? We do this so we can be empathetic to Christ's story, so it can impact our story. Picture it. Jesus, Last Supper, reclining at the table, fellowshipping with his disciples, his apostles, the twelve that he had done war with, that he had taught, that he had called out. They were celebrating God's amazing grace and power in delivering the Israelites from the Egyptians. They were celebrating this Passover meal. To me, I can imagine Christ's silence in that moment. He had no more words to speak. Just taking it all in, he began to observe his people, his disciples. He began to listen to their conversations, to, to just, just engage in that moment. Those who've had children in their life or have ever had a baby, there are times you just stare at that child. Child doesn't know what you're doing, but you're looking. You're looking, you're imagining, wow, I love you guys so much. If you only knew, what would I do if you only knew how much I loved you? I see him reminiscing on the path that brought the disciples, to where they are. Thinking about where you came from and now where, look at you now. I imagine his heart swelling, his temples hurting, his eyes fighting back the tears that may be pooling. Looking at John and Peter with a smile on his face. Man, you guys. You've come so far. You can, do, you can do great things. Looking at James. 
appreciating him. Gazing into the distance and being saddened by the thought of leaving them. Because in the word of God, Jesus Christ himself transitions his disciples from disciples to friends. He says, now you know me. Now you know who I am. You are no longer disciples, but I call you friend. What an amazing transition. Being deeply grieved for what his friends' hearts will soon witness. And even more being heartbroken as each and every single one of them will betray him, will fall away from him, will be fearful. Leaving him rejected, leaving him dejected, standing alone, with a mob surrounding him. As Jesus was led as a, as a lamb to slaughter, none of his friends were around him. After some time, while conversations were still going on, John chapter 13, verses 3 and 5 tell us what Jesus did next. No need to imagine this, but he silently got up from supper. He took off his garments, he laid them aside. He grabbed a towel and he wrapped it around his waist. He filled a bowl of water. Remember, all in silence. No grand gesture, no announcements, no transition to the disciples say, hey, look, we had dinner, now we're going to do this. There was no program to it. Filled a bowl of water, came before his disciples, came before his friends, and check this out, this king lowered himself before their feet. He began to wash the feet of his disciples, of his community, of the people that he loved, of the people he cared for. You see, in Christ's moment of heartache, where the human thing to do would be to cry, would be to excuse yourself to a room, to take time away, would be to mourn, would be to share these feelings, 
would be to try to figure out a solution out of this suffering. You see, in that moment, in the midst of his last supper, he took it upon himself to love. He took it upon himself to demonstrate his last act of worship, which was to serve. We often forget that Christ's being on this earth was to love, which he did, and was to serve, which he did. Service to others when done right makes the servant vulnerable to the one being served. It puts us in a position to be hurt. However, Christ in his hurt further subjected himself to the mercy of his disciples. We need to learn to be vulnerable. We need to learn to put aside our pride. Who cares what people think of you? If you do, work on it. It's a problem. <laughs> lay aside your pride. Lay aside your titles. Lower yourself as our king did. And serve your community. Serve the people around you. And serve them in the filthiest way. In the most uncomfortable way. Wash their feet. This is not me telling you to go start washing people's feet. But rather it's a symbol to do what is necessary. We often love to focus on the good, but Christ said, the rest of your body is clean, I only need to worry about your feet. Why would I wash the rest of you? You're good. John chapter 13, 12 to 17. After he had done this act of service, this act of love, after he had set this amazing example, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and yes, you are right. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is no greater than his master, nor is one greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, that is not enough.
You are only blessed if you do them. If you know these things, it don't matter. Who cares? If you study about these things and learn about these things and think about these things and imagine these things and start to plan to say, I'm going to do these things, said it don't care. It has no value. I'm going to do it tomorrow. Okay. Doesn't matter. Your intention means nothing. He said, only if you do them, you are blessed. Only if you do them. As Christ was speaking, we can easily imagine how electric and how charged the room was. The disciples hanging on to every single last word. We have come past some amazing preachers in our day. But imagine hearing it from the mouth of God. Hanging on to every single last word. Trying to make sense of the pain that was behind his tone. Trying to make sense as to why is Christ choking up today? As he speaks to us in this manner. Soon after speaking these things, Scripture tells us that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. He was moved. He was uneasy. He he had a burden on his heart that he just had to get out. And so he said it. He said it in the plainest form possible. He said, one of you will betray me. In the midst of this amazing moment of every single disciple hanging upon his words, Jesus said, hold up. Let's meet reality right now. Because often, we just live up here. Let's bring it here. Often, people will think, man, I will do anything for you. But that is not the reality of the situation. One of you will betray me. And as the disciples pondered this thought and started to talk about it and say, God, Christ, who are you talking about? What do you mean? As, as, as Christ was explaining it to them, they started to say, never will I ever, though every single one of these leaven may fall away. One of the disciples stepped up and had the gall to speak out of place. Never will I betray you. Never will I leave you. If I had to die by your side, I will do it. Sounds so poetic. Sounds so amazing. Sounds so, so warming. And, and we often love to hear words like that. But have you ever gone to war, fighting side by side, like this? Christ said, what? No. Let me tell you, truly you will deny me, not once, but three times. Three full opportunities, three times you will fail. That before a rooster crows, 
you will deny me three times. Check it out. It was night. This was late. Rooster's growing in a few hours. And let me tell you something. I believe that in all the world, not one rooster crowed before he was denied three times. Today, one of you will betray me. And I look out into our church, I look into myself, and I see Christ pointing at me. Every day I wake up, I see Christ pointing at me because he don't, he doesn't, he's not worried about the other 11. Judas, he's worried about you. And I am a firm believer that all of us have a little bit of Judas in us. Because though we love poetic words and we love amazing songs and we love to write in our diaries and we love to pray out loud, When reality meets us, it tends not to be so beautiful. After Judas was given permission by Christ to do what he needed to do quickly, Jesus addressed the rest of his disciples. This was the last Time. This was the conclusion to the intimate moment he had with them. This was his marching orders. John 13, starting at 33, he says, Little children, I am only with you a little bit longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I will say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. You cannot follow me. So in light of that, a new commandment I give to you. We've heard it once and we'll say it again, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. I've never heard Christ to be so repetitive. He said love like five times. I've never known him to be so repetitive. By all this, by doing this, all men will know who you belong to if you love one another. It is not surprising that Christ's last lesson to his disciples and to us would be to love. That was his being. That was who he was. That was his character. It should not shock us or surprise us. And it is only through love that people will know 
who we are. We have become a church that needs to testify about our Christianity rather than live our Christianity. We must tell people we're Christians. We have to tell people with our mouth and our words. Which, as we all know, words hold nothing. Words aren't tangible. Words can't pick up stuff. Words, they call it lip service. God is saying, get rid of the lip. Just serve. Love one another as I have loved you. By doing this, all men will know who you belong to if you love one another. We put personal belief over godly principles. That when our brother or sister sins, we label them with that sin. We are not representatives of Jesus Christ, guys. We are rather representatives of fallen angels. We need to represent Christ. We judge others based on political affiliation. We hate based on opposition. We curse based on emotion. We lie based on convenience. We bend based on comfort. The only thing we should be doing is to love based on Christ. So let's stop being apathetic, lazy, and unexcited for God's word. Instead, let us hold fast to Christ's last commandment, which was to love as he loved. This was his final wish. This was his death wish as he made his way to the garden of Gethsemane. And today I pray and I hope you pray. I hope that you take the next few minutes to search your heart. And like Christ, start to love, regardless of the pain, regardless of political affiliation, regardless of race or sin or prejudices, regardless of personal feelings, regardless of your past or the misery that others may have caused you. Christ says to love and love alone. He does not say to love on condition, but to love unconditionally. I pray that we can be a church that begins to resemble the one we are trying to follow. Mahatma Gandhi said, I love you, Christ, but I don't love you, Christians. You Christians resemble nothing. You look nothing like your Christ. 
We need to love people. And only through that avenue will they see Christ in us. Nothing else.